Good morning, everyone. The context of this chapter, Isaiah 43, uh, is a section where God is addressing the Israelites regarding their future captivity in Babylon and their return from that captivity. So let's look at this chapter, uh, one section at a time. In verses 1 through 4, notice how fully God takes ownership over the lives of the Israelites. His claim for ownership is because God created them and formed them. Moreover, because God formed them, chose them, and redeemed them, they had nothing to fear. That's true of us today as well. As Christians, we're being formed and, and forged into the people of God. As it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice all the instances of I and you in verses 1 through 5. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you. I am the Lord your God. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. All of these instances of I and you show how relational God is and how he desires to have that kind of personal relationship with us. Now, I think there's a human tendency to make our relationship with God to be abstract, heady, and just theoretical. And in some sense, God is easier to handle and manage if we keep him at that kind of abstract, heady level. It's so much more challenging and harder to relate to God, but of course so much more rewarding as someone who is mindful of me, cares about the nitty-gritty details of my life, my words, my thoughts today, and, and who wants to relate to me at that personal level. And not only is it more rewarding, that's just true according to the Bible. And if you zoom out and think about it, it's amazing that the creator of the universe condescends to give himself to the Israelites as their personal possession because he loves them, because they are precious to him, as he says here. Again, this thought should fill us with wonder. Why would the one who created the stars even pay attention to rebellious creatures on this tiny planet? But amazingly, he does so. And although the Israelites have broken their covenant with God time and time again, God will keep his side of the bargain again and again. In verses 6 through 7, God says that he will recover his people from all the lands where they have been taken away to. And knowing this, the question that many people might have had back then after the Babylonian exile might have been, would the Israelites as a people finally be cut off as succeeding generations became mixed along with the rest of the nations in Babylon. And if that happened, would that mean then that the ancient promises to Abraham would have failed? God insistently says no. Even if the exiles themselves do not return home, their descendants, who God says are his sons and daughters, in verse 6, they will return back home. God's promises will not fail. He created Israel for his glory, verse 7, and that purpose will certainly come true. Now in verses 14 through 28 of this text, it describes Israel's new exodus. 
Just as God led his people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea in the original Exodus, so he will in the future lead them out of Babylon and through the barren wilderness to their home in the Holy Land in the second Exodus. Just as he defeated Pharaoh's army in the first Exodus, so he will defeat Israel's army and quench them like a wick the second time around. This, God says, is the new thing that he is doing in verse 19. And God will cause springs to come forth and paths in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It's all completely God's doing. Likewise for us, our salvation was all God's doing. As it says in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you think about it, each of our own personal testimony is the equivalent of God causing springs to burst forth in the wilderness and making a way in the wilderness for us. It was that miraculous and it was completely initiated by God. Finally, in verses 18 through 21, notice that when God forgives and restores his people, he intends that they forget the failures of the past. And so we should not keep bringing up our own failures of the past to ourselves. Practically speaking, we should not remember that which God has forgotten. In verse 25, he says so. After all, he forgave them, not because they brought him sacrifices, for they couldn't participate in the sacrificial systems while they were in Babylon, but purely because of his mercy and grace. In verse 7, we read that God formed the Israelites as a nation to glorify his name. In the same way, as the people of God, we are being formed today into his nation, and we can glorify and honor his name. We are called to be witnesses for God, just as Israel was to be God's witnesses to all nations. This is an exhortation that we are given many times in the New Testament. So for example, Philippians 2, 14-16, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. May we continue to represent Christ in our generation in this manner, and so shine as lights in the world as brightly as we can today. Good morning, everyone. The con-